1: in an old book, one of those very deep books that I have to keep reading almost every sentence several times, and there was a Latin phrase in there, which I wouldn't want to lay on you, but I might as well tell you what it is because I had to learn it myself, but the phrase is in conspecto dei, which means in God's view of things. It means more than that. There really isn't a perfect English translation, but it means that it... What the author was bringing to mind was that literally everything in our lives is done in God's view. The Lord of the universe, as Joe just sang, is watching, or every one of us, over everything that we do and say and think. And unto him, remember, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from him no secrets are hid. I'm so glad for the privilege of being here again in Oklahoma and also to do a Moody conference. I do want to clarify that I do go by my husband's name. This question almost invariably comes up if I'm introduced as Elizabeth Elliott and my husband is introduced as Lars Gren. I am Mrs. Lars Gren. Elizabeth Elliott is my pen name and my husband does pay quite a price for allowing me to use my pen name in public because he gets called Mr. Elliot quite often. <laughs> and he just smiles and says, I'm Mr. Elliot III. <laughs> so you can see he doesn't have any problems at all with his self-image. Now, I would like to see the hands of those of you this morning who are as old as or older than I am. Now, you don't know exactly how old I am unless you've been reading my newsletter. And you, if you read my newsletter, you should know I was 65 in December. How many of you are that old or older? Some of you are not telling the truth. <laughs> well, then I have some company here. and I think all of you who have raised your hands would agree with me that one of the advantages, one of the joys, I would even say one of the glories, one of the splendors of being old, and we are officially old. Um, and there are very many advantages and joys and splendors and glories of being this old. I just am thrilled to death to be 65 and in my 66th year. But one of the one of the advantages, and this is very very real to me, I'm becoming more and more conscious of it, is the heightened perspective that God gives me on all of life. I was thinking about this, of course, as I was coming down from Boston yesterday on the plane, and of course the higher the plane goes, the further you can see, and the smaller the things on earth become. When we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And I just think it's thrilling to realize that, according to the Bible, I have five years left. That is the uh, that's a normal quotient of life. And the Bible said, if by reason of strength, we might have 10 more after that, 70, three score years and 10 is, is a normal lifespan. And it just thrills me to think that maybe that's all I have left, maybe less than that, maybe more than that. God knows. <clears throat> One of the perspectives, which to me is very, very clear, is that there's really only one thing in the whole universe that matters. And that is our theme for today, knowing God. When it comes right down to it, is there anything else you can think of that really matters by comparison with that? Well, I don't know of anything else. It's an enormous subject, and I've narrowed it down giving my talks the title of Grace and Diligence. Actually, I'm going to be talking about three different things which are very important components of learning to know God, and the first of those would be grace, and the second is will, and the third is diligence, but this first talk you can entitle Grace if you want to take notes. And I'm going to do my very best to make what I have to say clear and um, understandable. I will try to repeat things and to help you with an outline. So before we get to the outline, I want to tell you a story that we heard in person a few months ago when we were in Brooklyn. We were um, at Brooklyn Tabernacle, which is a wonderful lighthouse for God in the midst of a very tough place to live. I lived in Brooklyn myself way back before I went to Ecuador. And the pastor of that church was telling us that crack has changed the lives of everybody in Brooklyn. Crack being one of the worst of the drugs because it is so available and so cheap. And he tells us that crack is being given out on playgrounds to little children free in order to hook them. And they get hooked very fast. And then, of course, once they're hooked, they will do anything to steal money in order to buy the drugs Well, we were sitting across the table from a couple whom we didn't know. There were a number of people that had taken us out for supper. And so I turned to the lady across, across from me and I said, Maria, what's your story? Because everybody has a story, if you can just pry it out of them. Well, I didn't have to pry. Maria's husband was sitting next to me and he said, you've asked the right lady. He said that it is her favorite story and it's a story she loves to tell. Well, I wish I had time to tell the whole story, but she had a tragic story of having lost her mother actually before she was born, almost. She was born at at five months' pregnancy, and her mother died just a couple of days after that, and the baby did actually survive, and her distraught father didn't really know how to take care of her, and she went through various traumas. By the time she was 10 years old, she was sniffing glue, And then she was smoking marijuana, and then she went from marijuana to more powerful drugs and eventually to mescaline and heroin. And she was literally, she said, nodding out from age 10 to age 25. And she had a boyfriend named Mike, and they went to Mexico on a very fancy vacation with Club Med. And she said that day when she was alone in the hotel room, God spoke to her and he said, Maria, give me your life. It is your last chance. She had been sitting there almost in suicidal despair thinking, is this all there is? Is there nothing else that means anything in life? Why would God create me and allow me to live a life like this? And that was when God spoke to her and said, Maria, give me your life. It's your last chance. And she said it just came over her like a flood that God was literally speaking to her, calling her. She realized that what he said was true. She didn't have anything else. She had no other chance, no possible way of redeeming her life, rescuing herself. And immediately she said, I knew what I had to do. Number one, I had to quit sleeping with Mike And number two, I wanted to go to church and I was going to quit drugs. And so she said, Mike came back into the room and I didn't know how to tell him what had happened, but I said, Mike, I'm not sleeping with you anymore. And he said, you're what? She said, I'm not sleeping with you anymore. He said, what's happened to you? She said, I want to go to church. You want to go where? Church. He said, Maria, smoke a joint. And she said, I didn't sleep with him. We went back to New York. We had a pad, a place where we had been living together for just a couple of weeks. We had two mattresses. She said, I moved one of the mattresses into a different room, and we went to church. He went to make fun. And when there was an invitation, she said, I just I know I trampled over the feet of everybody in that row, just running to get out of my row. I ran down to the front. I dropped on my knees and started to cry She said, I knew that God was there. And suddenly I realized that there was somebody next to me crying, and I turned around, and lo and behold, it was Mike. Well, Mike and and Marie are now married. He is the pastor of a church in Brooklyn. He said, you should have seen me. Three earrings and feathers. I said, feathers? Feathers. Well, after we got home... Before we went, before we left that night, I said, Maria, will you write this story? And some of you have read that, just a very brief condensation of it in my newsletter. But she also sent me pictures of before and after. You just would not believe this beautiful young woman, just like this in pictures at the age of 12 and 14 and 16, just spaced out. What do they call zoned out? I hear all these words, jonesed out, my nephew tells me. is another word. Uh, just out of it. And then a picture of Marie and Mike with their two little boys. Just a happy, clean-cut family. What was the cause of the change? Grace. Grace is what we're talking about this morning. Grace pierced that woman's heart like a sword. And she responded, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I have a friend named Hattie Payson who died some years ago. But Hattie is one of the most memorable people I have ever known. And she went through a dreadful life. She went through forgotten if it was two or three husbands. She said, everything that a woman did wrong, I did. And the Lord got hold of her. And she could never sing that song, Amazing Grace, without tears. When she came to those words that saved a wretch like me. So when Maria went back to New York, she learned that 30 of her friends had gotten saved in some kind of a campaign or a meeting. And they had immediately begun to pray for Maria. And that prayer meeting was the night God said, Maria, give me your life. Does that give you chills or what? (laughs) Prayer matters. Who are you praying for? Are you discouraged? You've been praying for him for 25 years, nothing has happened? Well, who knows who prayed for Maria for many years before those 30 people got down to business? That could have just been the tiniest little straw that changed the wind. But it was the action of God, first of all. God acting on those 30 people. God acting unknown to them in the heart of Maria in that fancy hotel in Acapulco. And God acting in Maria to respond, to do what God said and God acting through prayer to engineer, to bring about, because before the foundation of the world, God engineered a world in which prayer matters. That was all grace, wasn't it? All of those actions were of grace. So, number one for your outline, those of you who are note-takers, what is grace? You've all heard definitions of it. I want to say... That it, quote, it, unquote, is God. Grace is God himself. In the experience of Maria Derso, there was no, there is no distinction. Grace and God are synonymous. It was God that came to her. God giving himself to her. Grace to some of us may seem a theological word, remote, very vague. It sort of ties your mind in knots, and maybe it's never had any very practical, visible, tangible effect in your life. Until you stop and think about it. I mean, we wouldn't be here. We couldn't draw the next breath if it weren't for God, if it weren't for the grace of God giving us breath. In his hand is the breath of every living thing, including the trees and the tulips and the crabs, and the germs. In his hand is the breath of every living thing. Some of you watch Bill Buckley, I do whenever I have a chance, which is very, very rare, but on one occasion he was debating um, the subject of the existence of God. And he was actually debating against some Preachers, so-called ministers of the gospel or ministers of something or other, who knows what they were ministers of, who were raising very serious questions as to whether or not there was any way of knowing that God really does exist. And Bill Buckley was, as usual, uh, witty, um, acerbic, um, brilliant, and straight when it comes to the truth of God. And he... It explained why he knew that there was a God. And one of these ministers turned to him and he said, Well, you know, God's never shown me any of that stuff. Why would God show it to you and not to me? And Buckley said, Grace. And the moderator, who had absolutely no idea what to say next, said, Mr. Buckley, would you care to expand on that? Nope. What else is there to say? It's grace, the grace of God. God giving himself to us, a generous, personal outpouring of himself and his love and his will. That is what grace is. Communicating himself to us, establishing in in two directions a commerce. But of course, you and I have a very crucial part in these in the establishing of that commerce. God is always pouring himself out to everybody. He gives his rain and his sunshine to the just and to the unjust. He gives us food, he gives us breath. He enables us to walk and talk and speak and think. But the commerce which is meant to be established between us involves something that we're going to come to later on. But this exchange between God and the soul is what must take place if we're going to know him. How are we going to know God unless there is that exchange? So he gives to us and we give ourselves to him. We receive what he gives and we give ourselves to him and he receives us. He gives, we receive, we give, he receives. And so a continual circle is established between us. So grace is God giving himself to us, a generous personal outpouring of himself and his love. Now, secondly, how does grace come? Mysteriously, unexpectedly, quietly, and sometimes violently. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul, or who was then Saul, of Tarsus on his road, on the road to Damascus, he was suddenly struck blind by a light from heaven and fell on his face on the ground and he heard the voice of God. That was grace, God beginning this personal relationship, calling him mysteriously, unexpectedly, not quietly this time, but violently. And Saul's response was what made the difference. God has chosen to enable us to respond. Isn't that amazing? If God didn't enable us, if He hadn't created us with the will to choose, we could not choose the good or the evil. But He created us with that will. And we'll talk more about that later. But what was Saul's response? Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? The instant recognition that it was the Lord convinced him that he had a responsibility, that something was going to be required of him. And anyone who may be here this morning who has really never thought about any kind of commerce or relationship being established with God must come to terms with the fact that when God does speak to you in such a way that you know it's God, and he's never spoken to me in any audible voices or even in any whispers, he's never given me any special visions, he hasn't given me handwriting on the wall or stars of Bethlehem or pillars of fire, nothing like that. But we do know when God speaks. But you must come to terms with the fact that there will be a demand that there will be something required. And so we must say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Now, there's a very interesting mention of this word grace in the Old Testament. It may not be, that particular word may not be there in the translation that you might be using. And it doesn't happen to be in the, the New New International Version, which is what I have in my hand today. But it says that Esther found grace from everyone who saw her. Or found grace with the king. You remember the beautiful story of Esther, that Jewish woman. And she was in a, a heathen king's harem. And in that harem, these beautiful virgins were given beauty treatments and special food. They had six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. I mean, it was, they were serious about being beautiful. And each one would be called to King Xerxes to spend the night. It's in the Bible here, ladies. (laughs) And in the evening, the girl would go, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem, to the Kershashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. A eunuch would be a fairly safe man to have in charge of the concubines. And she would not return to the king... Unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing. Now, the passage tells us earlier that when this girl's turn came, she could ask for anything that she wanted from Shashgaz, the eunuch, and it would be provided for her. But this tells me something about Esther. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, another one who was in charge of the harem, suggested. A woman contented, a woman submissive, humble. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Now, she must have been a very pleasant, cheerful girl. And she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She asked for nothing, and she received a crown, a king's crown. And when God first comes to us, It's not because we've asked. We didn't know enough to ask. When we start asking, he has already put that desire. He has already in some way incited us, wooed us, made himself attractive to us so that we begin to ask. And there may be someone here this morning who just by hearing Maria's story would be given the hope that God might actually respond to you. If you responded to him, grace, that was why Esther received the king's favor. Nothing that she had done, it was grace. She was the only one of many very beautiful virgins whom the king chose. Now, in John chapter one, we find that Jesus was begotten of the father and full of grace and truth. This is a chapter about the Incarnation, the deepest mystery that we know anything about. The coming of God when he was manifest in the flesh. He was a baby, made himself nothing, and was born just as any other baby is born, except that the mother was a virgin, overshadowed and empowered by the Holy Ghost. And so in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received One blessing after another, this translation says. Other translations say grace in place of grace. Grace in exchange for grace. Just grace piled on top of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's manifest, visible outpouring of his love came in the form of this baby. The baby was God's gift of grace, and that that baby, the Son of God himself, is the gift of grace to us. We receive that grace through him. His self-revelation, now think of that little undoubtedly squalling baby, I think he was a perfectly normal human baby, and very messy in that probably cold and undoubtedly dirty Stable. Keep that picture in your mind and now listen to this picture which is from he- Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. This is the one who made the universe Lying in blood in a manger. The hands that had formed the worlds, now so tiny, so helpless, that the great angel-blinding light should shrink his blaze to shine in a poor shepherd's eye. That the unmeasured god, so low, should sink as prisoner in a few poor rags to lie that from his mother's breast he milk should drink, who feeds with nectar heaven's fair family. Well, I won't give you all the rest of the poem, but that's from a 17th 17th century poem by Richard Crashaw about this incarnation, this incredible thing. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Verse 3 tells us, what that sun is like. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he humbled himself. That's grace, grace that he would put up with all of us and all of our sins and our defiance and our faithlessness, our deliberate sins, our choosing to sin, to trespass. Oh, but you say, I I would never choose to sin. It's always a mistake. It's a failure. Wouldn't you? Has your husband ever hurt you? Did you not do what I do and think, now how can I get back at him? What nasty thing can I say or do that's really going to put him in his place and make him realize what he just said to me? That is what you call arranging to sin. (laughs) And the grace of God has put up with that throughout the centuries. How does he come? You know the Christmas carol that says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Have you thought about that when you've sung that? Christmas carol, O oh, little town of Bethlehem. And there's another word that I want to give you. I don't know how many of you have already memorized that wonderful Latin phrase, in conspectu Dei. Did you write that down? I didn't think so. Do you remember what it means? That's the most important thing. In God's eye, under God's eyes, in God's view. Well, here's a wonderful word, prevenient. Another theological word that we don't, throw around at the breakfast table, I don't suppose, very often. It just means going before. God's grace is prevenient. It is always preparing us, preparing his way. When Amy Carmichael, that Irish missionary who went to India back in the 19th century, (coughs) was on her way to Japan, she went to Japan first, as any of you who have read her books or my biography of Amy Carmichael, which is entitled A Chance to Die, would know, She went to Japan and spent a year there before she went to India, where she stayed for 53 years without a furlough. And when she got to the dock in the little island of Japan, where she was to start her work, the person who was supposed to meet her was not there. And these were back in the Dark Ages, and there was not a soul who spoke a word of English, of course, nor did she know a syllable of Japanese. And she lands in Japan, and it's a very amusing scene. As she describes it, she was sort of tumbled out of this small ship with her baggage, just sort of dumped out onto this dock. And there she was, surrounded by absolutely flabbergasted black-haired people, most of whom had never seen anybody with a nose that size or eyes so round or white skin that white. And everybody just gazing at her and staring. And she said she just sat down on her bundles and just laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) Because the Lord had given her as a promise before she ever left England, when he putteth forth his sheep, he goeth before. And that's prevenient grace. He always prepares something. And lo and behold, down the road comes, obviously, a Westerner, a white man. Turns out to be an American, of all things. And he just came along by chance. He certainly wasn't looking for anybody on the dock. And so she, he came up, started to talk with her, found out that she didn't have any idea where she was supposed to go. And he said, well, I know a missionary in this town. I'll take you there. And so that's what he did. That's what you call prevenient grace. Preceding and anticipating our needs. God is always ahead of us. And if you're a good mother, you are always ahead of your children. You know what they need. You don't necessarily know what they want the next time, but you do know what they need. And a good mother is always providing. And so our loving father is always ahead of us. How does he come? Well, preveniently is another one of the adjectives you can put down. In addition to mysteriously, unexpectedly, quietly, violently, and preveniently. He comes knowing in advance what we need. And once upon a time, two people were walking along the road to Emmaus just after the crucifixion of Jesus. And they were discussing how everything in their world had fallen apart. They were hoping that this Jesus, who had just been nailed to a cross, would become a king and would establish peace. And here their their hopes had been dashed. And while they were walking along discussing these things, A stranger came along and joined them and he said what are you talking about and they began telling him these things they said we're talking about what happened in Jerusalem and he said what things and they said you mean you don't know and so they told him well of course as he they walked along then eventually they came to their house and they were going to go in and he was going to go on the scripture says but they invited him to come in and have supper and it was as he broke the bread that They recognized that it was Jesus. There's a world of truth, depth upon depth upon depth of truth. In just that little phrase, he was known by them in the breaking of bread. Here he was giving himself afresh, having been ground to a powder, as it were, Like the seed of the wheat that falls into the ground, it has to die. It has to spring up into life. It has to die all over again when it's harvested. It has to die when it's taken into the mill and ground. It has to die when it is eaten by us. Bread is a wonderful illustration of life coming out of death. But it was when he broke the bread that they recognized who he was. Jesus himself draws near. And I believe that Jesus is drawing near to everyone In this room in some way he has something to say to you I don't know what your motive was in coming here today but God knows and it doesn't really matter what your motive was he can speak to you and then of course the great question which is number three in my outline and if you've already lost numbers one and two I'll give them to you again number one was what is grace number two how does it come and number three how shall we Respond. Now, how did we, or they, respond in the first chapter of John? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who, belie- who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To you and me, when we receive Christ, he gives us the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural desire, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. contrasting physical birth with spiritual birth we are born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of god the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us he was not recognized or received but he came anyway in verse 16 we have that phrase grace over against grace. It's almost an untranslatable phrase from the original language. Um, the little word between grace and grace is the word anti, which we have in English meaning against, but it, it literally means uh, in exchange for as well as on top of. So it's grace, in exchange for grace, grace on top of grace, blessing upon blessing. What was Paul's response? We read in John, he came to his own and they didn't receive him. Paul's response was, what do you want me to do? And in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10, and I hope that at least you write these down and check over those verses later on. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, he says, I am the least of the apostles. And do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Now you can see to it today that God's grace to you is not without effect. The grace is there, super of grace. But it could be without effect. If. You don't respond. So he says his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, in advance, Paul didn't know that by choosing to work hard for God, he was going to receive grace to do all that work. And as he looked back, he could say, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So we become one with God. Grace and God are almost synonymous. When I respond in faith to God and to Christ, then I become one with him. So Paul can say with all honesty, I worked, yet not I, but the grace of God was working in me. Maria had to choose to quit sleeping with Michael. Now, do you suppose that that was an easy decision? You would not believe all the letters that I get from young women and young men telling me that it is very unreasonable of me to expect people to stay out of bed before they get married. That is just impossible nowadays. And my husband and I went to an appalling lecture on the subject of AIDS at a public high school about a year or so ago. And there were two speakers, a Christian doctor who spoke on abstinence, and he gave him the word "straight." The other speaker was a 42-year-old, adulterous, cigarette-smoking, drinking, drug-using woman whose boyfriend was sitting on the front seat, boyfriend being 55 or 60, I would guess. She told these high school kids, I am sexually active. And when the question was raised in the question and answer period, in response to what the doctor had said, that condoms don't necessarily work. There is no such thing as safe sex. The question was raised, of course, to this woman. You're telling these students, just be careful. Be sure to protect yourself. How? How would you suggest? And she said, well, and she smoked her cigarette, and she looked at the ceiling, and she twined her legs around her chair, and she fidgeted, and she said, If I were 18 years old, I don't want anybody telling me that I have to stay out of bed. I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's reasonable. So the question remains, what would you suggest? And she said in almost a whisper, I don't have an answer. Now, of course, you can tell people to stay out of bed because it takes a choice a deliberate willed voluntary choice to put yourself in a compromising position I don't care how overwhelming the temptation became and I hear these stories and I have files full of detailed stories of exactly what happened you know first of all they tell me oh you know I really don't know how it happened but somehow or other I got pregnant and I say well it happens the same way every time uh, Why did you go to the man's dormitory room? Why are you in the back seat of a car in the dark? That's a choice. Don't give me this stuff you have that you can't help yourself. Maria could certainly have smoked a joint when Mike told her to smoke a joint. He could have said, look, I brought you all the way down here and you mean to tell me you're not going to pay me back at least by sleeping with me anymore? I mean, we've been sleeping together for three weeks. What difference does it make? No, she made a choice and she stuck with the choice. And when she got home, she did exactly the thing that she knew God had told her she must do, which was to go to church. And she went to church with Mike's derision and scorn. That's response. Now, I don't know what God might be telling you today, But he wants you to do it, and you can do it, and we're going to come to that. Now the results. Maria established this commerce, this exchange by responding in obedience. She had no concept of grace. She did not know who God was, really. She just knew that God had spoken, that something had come from above and pierced her heart, and there was a light that went on. And she knew that she had to do this one thing. I'm not sleeping with Mike tonight. And she would not smoke another joint. That's a choice. That's response. Number four, what are the results of our response? The first thing is forgiveness. When we come to God, we need forgiveness. Romans chapter three verse twenty four. Well let me read <clears throat> twenty two. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his what? Grace justified freely by By his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There is no difference. Now, I'm nothing like Maria in having had a horrible background. I didn't come from a dysfunctional family. I was not abused. I have never been victimized. And if you tell me that I'm in denial, I don't want to hear that because (laughs) I know I'm telling you the truth. Um, You know, they get you coming and going. So I'm very different from Maria in that. But what does this verse tell me? There is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what we need is what we can never find anywhere else in the universe. And that's the grace of forgiveness. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. The result of my response to God is forgiveness. I am justified freely by his grace. He doesn't give me a long list of things that I have to live up to in order to receive the grace. The grace is given to me. It was given to William Buckley. It was not given to the other ministers, undoubtedly because God knew that they didn't need it at that point because they wouldn't have taken it or whatever. God knows exactly when to give it, and don't ever charge God with injustice. He knows where to distribute it. Well, my second husband, Addison Leach, and Lars is often encouraging me to tell stories about my second husband because he hears stories about Jim Elliott quite often. And uh, people feel sorry for Lars. I don't want you to feel sorry for him. He would be the first to tell you that he likes to hear stories about Jim and Ad, and he's quite sure he would have enjoyed knowing both of them. Um, Addison Leach was my, Jim Elliott, for those of you who don't know, was my first husband who was killed in Ecuador. My second husband died of cancer. Lars, how are you feeling this year? I think he's feeling fine. Well, Ad Leach had a wonderful story about grace, and I wish I could tell it the way he did, but he had it, he was sitting one day in his new house, in his new, by his new dining room table, with his young wife and his new baby in the high chair, and he looked out the picture window to the backyard, and there was a pear tree out there, and there was a bird in the tree. He said, I wish I could say it was a partridge, but it wasn't. It was just a bird. And lo and behold, here came three little boys with slingshots on the other side of the tree. And here was the tree, and there was the bird, and here was the picture window. And he said, I could see what was coming all already. And sure enough, one of the little boys flung the stone with his slingshot, and it came straight through the window. And, of course, the three little boys disappeared faster than you could breathe. And Ad went charging out the door, and they were gone. Well, he said, one of the, the boy who had, had thrown the stone, we'll call him Bill Smith, I don't remember what his name was, but he said, every time I saw Bill, he had seen me first, and he was running. And he said, finally, I got the window fixed. Now, of course, as all you men would know, you few men that are here, all three of you men would know, The uh, hardest thing is not getting the window fixed. The worst thing is having your wife say, when are you going to get that window fixed? And, of course, we wives would say, we wouldn't have to say it if you get the window fixed. You know, it wouldn't ever have to be said more than once. But anyway, he said, I finally did get the window fixed. And I still never saw those three boys again. They used to come over and play baseball in the yard. And they used to use the basketball that we had there, the basket that we had on the garage door, and he said, I never saw those three little boys playing in the yard anymore. They had banished themselves because they had sinned. And every time I saw Bill, he said, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to let him know that the window was fixed. But he said, every time he was running, well, he said, finally, one day, I saw him first. And he said, I went up and I grabbed him. And he said, that little boy was just White with terror, and he was furious, and he writhed and kicked and screamed, trying to get out of Ad Leach's grip, and Ad said, Wait a minute, Bill, wait a minute. I just want to tell you one thing. The window's fixed. You're forgiven. Come on home. I haven't seen you in the yard lately. And the little boy was just dumbfounded. Dr. Leach was not furious. He was just saying, You're forgiven. Come on home. And that's the way it is with God. You know, the message that we Christians proclaim is not a message of vengeance and punishment. It's a message of forgiveness and mercy and healing and grace. His purpose is to bring us home. To make us happy by making us holy. And God is much more interested in making us holy than he is in making us happy, but by the time he has made us holy, we will be the happiest people in the world. You can't be holy without being happy. And I'm not talking about piosity and religiosity and holier-than-thou kind of stuff, because to have a holier-than-thou attitude will do very nicely for a sin. I'm talking about real holiness. Do you know the second verse of Amazing Grace? Twas grace that taught my heart to what? To fear. That little boy at least had a sense of sin and responsibility. That's grace. Grace that taught his heart to fear. But what happened next? What does it say in the song? Grace my fears relieved. Adleach was the personification of grace. He relieved that little boy's fears. He, that little boy had been in misery for months. And the end of the, a bad story was that Bill Smith was killed during World War II. And he said, wouldn't it have been a shame if he and I had never gotten together? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The consciousness of our sinfulness is a gift of grace. God has given us a conscience. That is a gift that every human being possesses. Some people have seared their consciences as with a hot iron so that they seem to have none left. But the guiltier you feel, the more God's grace is yearning for you. Come to Jesus. Not only does the consciousness, not only is the consciousness of sinfulness a gift of grace, but it comes complete with the remedy. It's a wonderful doctor who can not only diagnose what's wrong with you, but can cure you as well. And Jesus said, I didn't come to heal the well. He said, I came for the sick. And he is the physician who knows how to make you totally well. And some of you have been lugging around the most tremendous piles of baggage and he wants you to leave that baggage at the cross the voice of God is your conscience the grace of God wants to purify that conscience when I was a child we sang hymns every morning in family prayers and one of the hymns that we often sang was marvelous grace of our loving Lord Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. When Adleech was dying in those last few weeks, he said to me many times, Elizabeth, do you really think God can forgive my sins? Having been a theologian and a professor and a preacher, he was very, very deeply conscious of his failings, as any of us who have any kind of spiritual responsibility ought to be. And I said to him, well, darling, you know, you preach the best sermon I've ever heard on grace. Do you imagine that your particular set of sins could exhaust the grace of God? And he would shake his head, and the next day he would ask me the same question. Grace Grace, God's grace, says the old gospel song, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Only God knows who the worst sinner in this room is. Very likely it's me. But there is no difference. All have sinned, and so we want to learn to know him. We've got to have his grace. What is it? How does it come? How shall we respond? And what will be the results? God bless you.